280 and can be found on page 1026 in your Bibles. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to give him the name after his father, Zachariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising the Lord. All the neighbours were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he has said through the holy prophets of long ago, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit. He lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. So we continue today with our sort of walk through the early stories of the nativity in, in the Gospel of Luke. And um, it's an interesting fact that the story as Luke recounts it is actually about two births. Um, and most of the preparation in Luke's Gospel 
is about the first of these two, with Zechariah and then with Elizabeth, father and mother of John. And so it is today that we look at the birth of John, the first of the two births. Now, of course, it's right at Christmas that we focus on the birth of Jesus, um, because everything is leading up to that. But for Luke, it clearly seems to be a central part of the good news story of Jesus that there was another birth, the birth of John. And so rather than sort of skirting over it, we're going to look at it this morning and see why for Luke it should be so important. We're going to look um, at the people. We're going to look at the parents and we're going to look at the prophet. So first of all, let's look at the people. Our passage begins like this. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy and they shared her joy. I guess it's no surprise. I mean, anybody who's had a baby will know that immediately it sparks joy and neighbors and relatives start sending congratulatory cards and uh, there's a sense of excitement in the air. New things are being birthed, new possibilities, a family. And of course, that's the case uh, for uh, Zechariah and for Elizabeth. And in that culture, a birth would have been a community affair. Um, Everybody would have got together, they'd have celebrated, they'd have brought cake, they'd have uh, had a party, they'd have rejoiced. And that's so, uh, especially so when it's the firstborn, and especially so when it was a boy. But here there's added wonder, isn't it? Can you sense it in the text? There's a miraculous context. Because of course, uh, Elizabeth is very old, and Zechariah also. And there's this story about the angel. The angel who's appeared and, and announced that Elizabeth is going to have a child. And, and then Elizabeth, who um, out of humility has sort of been in, in, um, out, of, out of social life for, for six months, preparing. So she's been in seclusion and, and suddenly God has answered their prayers. And so the text tells us that the, that the whole community rejoice because God has shown great mercy. Isn't that a lovely place to start? God shows great mercy. And when he does, it's always an opportunity for us to rejoice. I, I think in our individualistic culture, we've lost a dimension of the communal aspect of rejoicing when God shows mercy. Perhaps we need to loosen our tongues a little bit and speak more about what God does so that others can rejoice. Perhaps we need to look beyond ourselves a little more to rejoice when God does amazing wonders. Be that as it may, here's the setting. The people are rejoicing, the neighbors, the friends. Joy is at the heart of this passage. After so much exclusion, so much shame that has characterized Elizabeth's adult life, at last, Elizabeth can rejoice. And at last, she can place herself at the, the heart, well, he's rejoicing too, don't worry about him, but I'm the one preaching, all right? Um, 
at last she, Elizabeth, can place herself at the heart of tradition. Until now, she's always been on the edge. She's not been able to be fully a partaker in everything that the, the Jewish tradition offered. And yet, now, suddenly, she's at the heart. She's able to rejoice. She's able to pray. She's able to thank God. She's no longer on the edge. And so it is that after a week, she follows tradition. The tradition that leads to that culminating moment where they name the child. Another celebration of God's goodness. So now we're in tradition. Now we're in the heart of it. God has been gracious to them. He's been merciful. He's brought them into the heart of the community, into the heart of the faith. And so it is that we have a community affair. The people are rejoicing. And then Luke moves us on to look at the parents. Verses 59 to 60. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. Now we've lost something of that tradition, but of course at the time, uh, babies would be named after, perhaps after, after a characteristic that they, that they have. If, if a boy's born with flaming red hair, then maybe he'll be called Esau um, or a particular event, but most commonly after the father as a way of delineating the, the, the lineage and um, marking and respecting. And so it is that the people assume now we're in tradition, now we're at the heart of religion, now we're where God wants us to be, we're going to go the whole way. And of course, he'll be called Zechariah, the second because the son of Zechariah. But the traditions are going to be shaken. And this is our first hint that God here is shaking things up. He's shaking the community up. Because the focus moves away from the child and the obvious name that he's going to have to the mother. Well, now that's unusual. Because in the culture, the mother's job was to give birth to the child. Once she'd given birth to the child, she was gently put on one side and the focus was the child and the, and the father and the, and, the, and the naming. And actually, um, we have an amazing uh, little cameo here because Elizabeth, reinstated, is going to insist on the fact that she now is in the centre and has something to say. Interestingly enough, um, if Elizabeth has been reinstated in this passage, Zechariah is now excluded. He's nowhere to be seen. There's nothing about Zechariah here, no mention of him. And uh, that, of course, because he's disabled. For nine months, he's been unable to speak. Now, that's bad enough for any husband. My wife's here. But it's also bad for a priest, unable to perform his duties. So we can imagine poor Zechariah for nine months has been sitting at home in silence, disabled, disqualified, and disregarded. No one in this passage thinks about Zechariah. They assume they see Elizabeth, they assume the name of the child, so it is that Elizabeth speaks up and she says, no, 
he's going to be called John. Now, I love uh, the way she shocks everyone by stepping in and stepping up. I might be old, I might be a woman, but you'd better listen because I know what the angel said. And I love the implication too behind uh, her words. It's clear that she and Zechariah have seen beyond, seen beyond the immediate. They've understood her old age hasn't disqualified her. His disability won't disqualify him. Over the nine months of waiting in silence, they've nevertheless found a way to communicate. Her, the name of the child must be John. Why? Well, because the angel said so. And so they've communicated and Zechariah has found a way of telling Elizabeth what happened. So Elizabeth too knows the story of the angel. Elizabeth too knows how things need to happen. And so Elizabeth steps up at this crucial moment where nobody's thinking of her and nobody's thinking of the father. It's just the community affair and suddenly Elizabeth speaks up and says, oh, wait a minute. His name will be John. So they're all shocked. Shocked because Elizabeth has stepped in when she's meant to have done her job and finished. But also shocked because of the proposition, the proposal, John? But there's nobody called John in our family. And so finally, they turn to silent Zechariah. Oh, yes, he's here after all. We remember now. And then they do what lots of people still do today. They imagine that someone who can't speak also can't hear. Do you notice that in the passage? They make signs to him. Well, there's nothing in the passage that suggests he can't hear. I mean, Zechariah's not stupid. Um, he's heard what's going on. But they turn to him and they start doing sign language as if he couldn't understand, but he can. And so he indicates, come on, bring me a writing tablet. And so Zechariah writes down a faith-filled phrase. His name shall be John. Yohanan in Hebrew from the longer Yohanan, which means the Lord is gracious. Yes. And immediately, Zechariah's tongue is set free. And immediately, he praises God. And so does everyone else in the midst of their amazement, the parents and the people praising God, awe and wonder. And so the question, obviously, what is this child going to be? I mean, that's the question every parent asks when they see their little baby. What is this child going to become? But here there's real depth. What is this child going to be that his beginnings should be so unusual? And so we look not just at the people and the parents, but at the prophet, the child. John, as we know, will be a prophet in the line of Elijah the greatest of the prophets. But first in this text, there's actually another prophet, his father. Zechariah himself starts prophesying now that his uh, tongue has been set loose and uh, says this, verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people 
and redeemed them. Zechariah, the priest who's been taught to do things exactly the right way, is suddenly liberated by the Spirit and is able to prophesy. What an incredible release. It's not just a release of his language, it's a release of his logic. It's a release of his worldview. No longer is he just going to be doing what others have told him to do. No longer is he just going to be relaying tradition. He's going to be speaking the words of God by the Spirit. New life flowing in barren land. Streams of water in the desert. Salvation and rescue. That's what Zechariah is now talking about. He's understood that something new is happening. Not something contradictory with the past, but something that will fulfill the past. And in in a wonderful way, Zechariah is actually here um, becoming a prophet in more ways than one. Because not only are his words prophetic, as he imagines the great things that God is going to do and this kingdom that is going to come, and then the role that his child will have. No, 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 not just the words. Zechariah is being prophetic in his very experience in his very life, what Zechariah has been through embodies the history of Israel. Nine months of silence, suddenly broken at the naming of a child. That is the reflection of the history of Israel. Because prophecy, we know, had become silent for a long time. The people had been waiting for a prophet. A bit like in the time of the judges, where the word of God was rare. And they were looking for someone to come, for the prophet who would come, who would prepare the way. And now suddenly, God's word is going to burst out onto the scene. First here, and this is the first one we've got. If, well, Mary's song might be, you could consider it to be prophetic, but this is the first explicit prophecy, the spirit-filled prophecy And from now on, the Spirit is going to be poured out in in extraordinary ways through the birth of Christ. Something new is happening after years of silence. Just like Zechariah, nine months of enforced silence and then suddenly it bursts out in praise. He himself is prophetic in his experience. And interestingly, what God had begun as punishment for Zechariah for his lack of faith, now turns into a sign that God is doing a new thing. God redeeming even Zechariah and his experience. Nine months silence and suddenly, wow, the gates are open, the praise has come. What a sign that God is doing a new thing. And so he says, verse 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Zechariah prophesies redemption. That's the key word he uses here. He has redeemed. Redemption being the prime image of deliverance for the Old Testament people, deliverance from slavery, do you remember? When they were slaves in Israel and they were were bought out. They were bought at a price, their freedom was bought as they were released and as they went into the wilderness and they received the law and then they went towards the promised land. A huge picture of God redeeming 
um, his people from their enemies. A new freedom was given them so they could serve God without fear, as Zechariah will say in his prophecy. But of course, Zechariah's song very, very quickly turns towards his son. Interestingly, it's a sort of like an, op- an opposite movement to Mary's song. If you remember, Mary's song starts with her and then opens up to the world. Zechariah's song starts with amazing redemption and then focuses in on his son. His son, John, the prophet. And you, my child, he says, verse 76, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. That's an amazing thing for a father to say over his son. I mean, even the most doting father wouldn't dare say things like that. Zechariah, he, he, like he focuses on three different things that will, will characterize this, this young prophet, John's vocation. First of all, he's going to be called to prepare the way. Did you get that? To prepare the way. John will be a sign, even greater than Zechariah, that God is doing a new thing and that Finally, God is fulfilling his promise. In John, the people will recognize that God is speaking again. And John will prepare the way for Jesus by by plowing up the hard ground. That is often the work of a prophet. To destabilize people. To make them uncomfortable. Because the ground needs to be turned. The hard ground needs to be plowed. So that the word of the Lord can be received. That's exactly what John does. He goes out into the wilderness and he plows the hard ground. He shakes people up. He annoys them. He finds himself enemies with the religious leaders. Repent and be baptized, he will say. Be baptized? Jews being baptized? That was a ceremony reserved for non-Jews who were proselytes and wanted to become Jews. How dare you say that Jews need to be baptized? And yet, of course, we all need to repent, says John. We all need to open our hearts. We all need to allow God to turn the soil so that we can receive his word, Jesus Christ. And so he becomes called John the Baptist. Because he calls people, he prepares the way, he opens hearts, he challenges, he uproots. And that is the work of a prophet. John's going to unsettle the religious establishment by calling all to repentance. By calling all to leave the comfort of their religious routines to go into the desert. The place of testing and of renewal. The place of encounter with the living God. John will prepare the way. It's the first thing he will do. It's the first thing he says. The voice of one in the desert saying, prepare the way. But um, Zechariah sees clearly that 
John will also do other things. The second thing Zechariah sees is that John the prophet, his son, will also proclaim the knowledge of salvation. See that, verse 77? Not only will he prepare the way, but to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Now, Zechariah's song so far has proclaimed God's greatness because God is the one who saves his people from their enemies. That's what God does. That's what God did in the the redemption story as he brought them out of um, Egypt. The Exodus story is all about freedom from the Egyptians and from their enemies. And at the time of the early gospel stories that we have here and the birth of Jesus, the Jews would have understood that salvation as being freedom from their enemies, freedom from control as it always had been, whether it was the Ammonites or the Midianites or whoever wanted to come and conquer and take over the people of God, God's redemption, God's purposes of salvation were to free them from those things. And so naturally, now, it's freedom from the Roman oppressor who's wanting to squeeze them into a box and prevent them from being the people God wants them to be. And yet, here we see that it will be the work of Zechariah's son, John, to give knowledge of salvation, not through defeat of foreign invaders, but through forgiveness of sins. John's work is going to be to clarify the profoundly spiritual nature of salvation. Salvation is not just some sort of nationalistic act it's an intensely personal act where God comes and saves us not from external enemies political enemies or but although that's part of it but he goes to the root and he saves us from sin from death he forgives our sins John will be the first in that sense who proclaims humanity's greatest need and who opens the way for Christ to come, always giving that deeper understanding. Look under the surface. There's more. Go to the heart of things. Let the roots go deep. God wants to change hearts. Now, of course, the prophets had looked forward to that, but now it's come proclaiming salvation for the forgiveness of sins. That's where God's revolution in Christ was to begin. And John was the first to proclaim it. And then there's a third thing actually that the prophet John is to do, not only prepare the way, not only proclaim salvation through the forgiveness of sins, but also point to the, to the light of Christ. We have this in an amazing thing here in verses 78 and, and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will dawn, come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. John's work as prophet was to point away from himself to the true light. You remember that? As the greatest of the prophets, his work was to testify and point to the light that was coming into the world. And as John, the author of the gospel says, 
He himself was not the light. He came only to witness to the light. And so in John's gospel, in the first chapter, you see John the Baptist as an adult repeatedly denying that he is the Christ. I am not the Christ. It's not about me. Who are you, the people ask. And he simply says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. And John the Baptist, adult, puts his money where his mouth is because he is ready to see his followers leave him and follow Jesus. Remember, the very first disciple, Andrew, was first a follower of John. And when John's disciples turn to John and say, look, they're leaving us and they're going to him, what does John say? I must become less and he must become more. John had understood that his vocation profoundly was to point not at himself but to the light of Jesus Christ, the true light that was coming into the world. John, the greatest of the prophets. Now, friends, we long for a prophetic church. Today, we long for God to move in power, bringing many to faith in him, don't we? We long for deep and lasting social transformation, don't we? We long not just for words, but for a demonstration of the Spirit's power, don't we? For the Spirit of God to flow beyond the church into the neighborhood like water in the desert, don't we? Bringing freedom, release, redemption, salvation. That's what we long for today in Christ as the people of God here. Well, I want to suggest we need to follow the example of John, the greatest of the prophets, whose work is summarized in that prophetic word that his dad had over him when he was one week old. The dad who discovered his own prophetic vocation, who resumed John's work in those three points, that John was the prophet who was called to prepare the way, proclaim salvation and point to Christ. Those three points, it seems to me, need to characterize the work of every church today. And if we want to be prophetic, we need to do the same. We need to prepare the way for Christ. We need to be a sign in ourselves that God is doing a new thing. In ourselves. Our lives need to be a sign that causes rejoicing, but also challenges profoundly, that digs up the hard ground and turns it, preparing the way. We also need to proclaim knowledge of salvation, helping people see beneath the surface to the real need and the promise of forgiveness. And we need to point to the light of Christ, not to ourselves but to the one who has come and who alone can shine, as Zechariah says, on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and can guide our feet into the path of peace, shalom. 
Only Christ can do that. We can't. But he can. So I'd like to suggest this morning that we follow John's example and that we be also a prophetic people raising our voices to praise and to prophesy. And here's what we should say. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that we no more may die. Born to raise us from the earth. Born to give us second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king.